That, friends, is the Advent Conspiracy. That is the series in which we begin today. That is the series which we begin to wrestle with, to be able to look at our holiday season through new eyes. To be able to redirect our hearts and redirect our spending so that we consume less, but actually live out the Christmas story a little more. This morning we're going to begin by asking the question, can Christmas still change the world? Do we believe, do we live our lives in a way that believes that the story of Christmas can still change the world? Christmas still change the world. I'm going to begin our time together this morning by reciting some lines from one of my favorite movies. It's a movie I showed here last year called What Would Jesus Buy? It's a movie that talks about the uh, overconsumption that we as Americans do at Christmas time and distracts us from the message of Christmas. This is an appeal from the narrative uh, that opens up that movie made by Morgan Spurlock. As fall turns to winter across this nation... Many millions will converge on centers of worship, large and small, to celebrate and give thanks to a familiar God. He tells us to buy now and pay later. He tempts us with endless lines of credits, and he leads us to eternal debt. We used to be a nation of producers, but we've become a nation of consumers, American shopping malls can now fit every individual, meaning man, woman, and child, in North America, South America, and Europe in them at the same time. Those three continents can fit into our shopping malls in America. For the first time since the Great Depression, our household savings rate is actually below 0%. And 60% of us are in long-term debt on our credit cards. We now spend less than one hour a week in any sort of spiritual or religious activity and over five hours a week shopping in some capacity. In fact, over 15 million Americans are considered addicting to shopping, a reality that they often notice about themselves this time of the year. More than half of us, statistics show in Pew Reports, actually look to Christmas with more dread than anticipation. But we'll spend still over half a trillion dollars on Christmas this year, and we'll create five million tons of extra waste just during the Christmas season. Do we believe that Christmas can still change the world? Do we live in a way that believes Christmas can still change the world? The Christmas story is a story of love. It's a story of hope, redemption. It's a story of God wanting relationship with his creation. How have we traded the best story in the world for the story of what is on sale? In some countries, it's actually illegal to market to children. So this time of the year, you will not see commercials that are decorated and designated for children alone. However, in America... We are not one of those countries. It's actually estimated that we spend $50 billion a year, $50 billion a year marketing to children. Most of that money gets played out this time of the year. Makes the Super Bowl commercials look cheap. 
In fact, studies have shown that children under 8 cannot tell the difference between a commercial and a television show or TV and the real world. So we spend $50 million of marketing to children that can't actually discern reality. Why do we spend this much time marketing to them? Because believe it or not, American children on average experience over 40 hours of media time throughout the week. Some sort of media, uh, TV or their, your, your tablets or the computer, American children spend over 40 hours a week glued to one of those. Though, having a meaningful, in-depth relationship with your parents and having conversation with them, we only spend about 40 minutes a week in some sort of conversation with our children. 40 minutes versus 40 hours. As we wonder if Christmas can still change the world, we need to ask ourselves, what are we saying about Christmas? What are we telling our children? What are we mirroring to our children and to our neighbors about the story of Christmas? Because I will tell you, they are watching. They are watching. What story of Christmas are we mirroring to our children and our neighbors? I hope, like you, that you'll resonate with this, that I don't want to be a functioning agnostic with my Christmas story. I don't want to be a functioning agnostic with the way that I celebrate and gather at Christmas. American consumers will spend over $1 billion on Christmas this year, it's estimated. Regardless of what we believe about Christmas, what we say about Christmas comes through our form of spending. We put our money where our mouth is. As followers of Jesus, we need to accept that our hearts are formed by what we worship. Excitement, anticipation, hope, all these emotions swell around the objects that are our dearest and most dear affections. We spend our time and energy on what matters the most to us. It's where we find our priorities. Where our energy is where our money is, where we focus, where we desire, where we make our plans, there are our priorities. There is also what we worship. You know, the one time that we actually see Jesus get mad in the Bible, the one time that we actually see him get angry, is when the story of the temple, the simple story of God wanting to be with his children, when, when that story gets invaded, by a whole bunch of retail merchants who also work with the visas and the MasterCards and overcharge and overinterest people in an oppressive way in the temple, that is the one time we see Jesus get mad. We must ask ourselves, what are the implications of replacing the simple story of Christmas, like the temple story, the simple implications of replacing the simple message of Christmas with the junk that we decide to bring to the table. What do we worship during Advent? The kids yelled it, right? Jesus! That's the right answer. It's the answer that we can recite without answering. But I also wonder if it's the truthful answer. But, let's pause. Reflect on your favorite Christmas stuff. I know for me, I like to put up a tree. 
I like to bring out, uh, as my wife calls my old lady, Christmas decorations of Christmas carolers. And I like to have a train around the tree. I like to have lights around the house and candles. See why she calls me an old lady? But I have to ask myself, how does this speak to an incarnate Jesus? How can I transform my traditions and the things that I love, my celebrations? How can I transform them that says Christmas can still change the world. We must ask ourselves the implications of what we do. Christmas has become a time of consumption. It should alert us to stop, pause, and look closely at what we desire. This morning, I hope we can move from a place of well-rehearsed, Jesus is the reason for the season, to a belief that outpours from our hearts, a sense of worship that pours out from our hearts and on all those that we meet. This morning, I want to look at the greatest gift that can fulfill us. I want to see it pushed out in a way that says, all I need is Jesus. I don't need that latest, greatest thing. I don't need something, even if it is, you will never have to buy this item again, or There is no other item that will make your life this simple. I don't need those things. I want to push out what it means to just need Jesus. In the book Advent Conspiracy, the book that corresponds to this series, you'll be able to find it in the library later during this season. We sit in a church, this is a quote they they share in the book, sorry. We sit in a church disconnected from the Christmas story. Because we know that deep inside, we're too far from the stable to see much of anything. They go on to push out the idea in the book that every time that we actually give into our traditions or that we give into our consumption, that we actually take one step further away from the stable stable, and remove ourselves even more from the equation and from the story. If we were able to change Christmas... Maybe we'd be able to change the whole world. In the movie, What Would Jesus Buy? It follows the story of Reverend Billy, this Christmas activist who is on the road to save Christmas. And this is the story that he shares as he goes out on the road. He says, if we were able to change Christmas, we'd be able to change the whole world. Do we as Christians believe that? I'm actually not sure that Reverend Billy, this Christmas activist, is a um, Christian. But here we see a Christian belief, whether we see it or not. If we are able to change the way we do Christmas, it may have implications on how we live our lives. It's a powerful line. But it might help us this morning to start taking steps and positioning ourselves in that way. So this morning we enter our series, Advent Conspiracy. We enter in believing, one, that Jesus wants us to be co-conspirators in his message, in his story, and two, that Christmas can still change the world. Can you guys say that with me? Christmas can still change the world. One more time. Christmas can still change the world. I believe that. If you remember the Advent Conspiracy from last year, Remember that this week we begin with the idea of worshiping fully. We'll look at the same four tenets that we looked at last year of worship fully, spend less, give more, and love all. But we're going to be looking at them through other scriptures. We, we started the foundations last year. We're going to build on those now because we realize we're not going to get this 
all in one year. We didn't get it last year. We're not going to get it all this year. But what happens is as we continue to push out these ideas and find their, their examples in Scripture, we will begin to make the steps, begin to position ourselves, to focus ourselves in working on making Christmas a powerful and radical story. They dis- the Advent Conspiracy describes this Sunday as this. And to worship fully part of our journey, we see Christmas starts with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. This is the holistic approach God had in mind for Christmas. It is a season where we are called to put down our burdens and lift up a song to our God. It is a season where love wins, peace reigns, and a king is celebrated with each breath. It is the party of the year. Entering the story of Christmas means entering this season with an overwhelming passion to worship Jesus to the fullest. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. What does it look like to worship Jesus fully? Today we enter that story of entering and wanting to worship fully by looking at Luke 2, 8 through 20. I invite you to follow along with me if you have your Bibles. There's a pew Bible in front of you that is red. It will also be on the screen if you can see that. We'll start by reading that passage and then unpacking it a little bit. Luke 2, 8 through 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord had shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all of the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and a baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word considering, concerning all that had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which they were just as they had been told. We know this account well. In fact, I don't know if you're like me, but one of the traditions we have in our family is after we wake up and our kids open their presents and have Christmas, we go down to my mom and dad's and they get to open some more presents there and we get a big meal together, hopefully some ham loaf. And, you know, um, that is part of our Christmas tradition. But the other part of it is before we open the presents, my dad reaches for his Bible that sits next to his recliner because he doesn't leave the recliner. And he grabs it, and he slowly pulls it over into his lap, and he opens it up and begins to read Luke 2. 
the story of Jesus. And it's a tradition in our family, it's probably a tradition in some of yours as well, to hear the story of anticipation and the greatest gift before we worry about the other gifts. But what does this passage teach us about worshiping fully? There are many things it can teach us, but this morning we're going to look at ten. We're going to unpack ten items that I think are going to teach us what it means to live by the implications of worshiping fully. So if you have a bulletin with you, you should have received one when you came in. You'll see there are some places to fill in underlines. There's some notes there. I encourage you to follow along. I encourage you to jot down anything that uh, you hear this morning that you want to wrestle with later. I don't think we capture everything on a Sunday morning, and I would encourage you to push it out the rest of the week as well. I hope together today we can discover at least one thing that helps us discover this story in a new way and advances us in on the journey of Advent conspiracy. I hope it allows us to see this passage through fresh eyes and moves us all into an authentic way of following Jesus. As we explore what it means to worship fully, I hope we can also follow the shepherds that we just read about on their journey that was faced on liberation. In the book from Advent Conspiracy, this quote also appears. Let our worship be an outpouring of our hearts. Let us take Jesus seriously and begin the desire of the same things that moves his heart. Let our worship drive us from the enclosure of our church walls and out into a painful places to cry out for God's liberation. An author named Mark Laberton says this, the disparity between economics and justice and is an issue of worship. According to the narrative of Scripture, the very heart of how we show and distinguish true worship from false worship is apparent in how we respond to the poor, the oppressed, the neglected, and the forgotten. As of now, I do not see this theme troubling the waters of worship in the American church. Are our waters troubled as we worship? First thing we look at, I said there's going to be ten things that we're going to unpack from the Luke 2 account to see what it means to worship fully. And as you see in your notes, the first thing that we notice is this. Overlooked individuals lived their ordinary lives in ordinary ways within their neighborhood were the first invited into God's story. Mary, the would-be mother of God, was an ordinary girl who was scheduled to marry a poor man. She was insignificant at the time. She was from an insignificant town. Her and Joseph were ordinary people that would have been easily overlooked and not taken seriously. The next people God invited to a story that were not related to Mary and Joseph were ordinary people who lived their lives and jobs that were overlooked and also not taken seriously. The shepherds. In this time, shepherds had a reputation of being people who couldn't get real jobs. Do you guys know those kind of jobs in today's time? That's where people work that, you know, get out of jail or out of probation or those people that have a shady past or those people that just can't get a real job. They do those jobs over there. That's what a shepherd's job was. They were thieves. They were rejects. They were despised. They were often a little slower than other people, and they were dirt poor. They would not be allowed in courts And at the time, their testimonies would not even have been considered credible. These are the people Jesus invites into the Christmas story. Not those who were trying to be the most like God, but.
but actually those who are the most authentic with who they were, but actually the farthest away from what we think of with God. We see that these individual people were involved in ordinary work and calling, but as biblical commentary Matthew Henry points out, they were not out of the way of a divine and tangible sense of the presence of God. Even though they just lived ordinary lives with ordinary jobs in an ordinary neighborhood, they were not outside the divine presence of God. In fact, the presence of God found them there. These ordinary individuals encountered the presence of God in a very real and tangible way that we see overwhelmed them. They tangibly met God through the worship of the heavens, and that is often a byproduct of fully worshiping. These ordinary individuals encountered the presence of God in a very real and tangible way that overwhelmed them. The presence of God is overwhelming when we sense it as we worship. Doesn't stop there. Goes on, and the angel says to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all of the people. The angel is a tool that God had used. It was was a step to invite them to actually get over themselves and the fear that was holding them back from being part of God's story. Or we could say it like this. This experience invited them to journey from a place of fear to see the heart and the vision of God. God wanted them to see his big vision. God wanted them to be part of the coolest and most unique story. The idea that God was actually going to come to a poor girl, be birthed in a really normal way, and that was the way that the Messiah was going to be there. And not only that, the first people outside of the family to hear were going to be shepherds, these dirty thieves. This was the excitement of the story. And the first thing that they encounter in their invitation is they are overwhelmed with fear. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. If you're going to be part of the story, it is time to get over yourselves. If you're going to be part of the story, it's time to move from fear to a contagious vision of who I am and what I'm going to do. He said, if you're going to be part of the story, you don't get to stay there overwhelmed and feared. Now it's time to take the step in and push in. God wanted them to see their big vision, but they couldn't see it if they were too far away from the manger. (coughs) They were fearful of these supernatural beings and the presence of God. But if they stayed there, they would have actually missed out on being awesome co-conspirators of the story of Jesus. So then they see this. They discovered through the angel's words, they discovered the Messiah would arrive in an ordinary way, easily overlooked by the world, but in a city that was known for worship. In a city that was known for worship. The angel said, you will find him in the city of David. Now, we all know David was a broken man that had his weaknesses. But the one strength that David is really known for is worship. David was a musician. David uh, wrote most of the, the Psalms. He was somebody who knew what it meant to worship the heart of the Father. And he spent a lot of his life writing songs and poems and expressions of worship. Traditionally, the city of David had psalters. They had people that would mirror David's gifting 
they would push out what it means to worship. If the city of David was known for anything besides being busy this time of the year, it was known for worship. It was known for its, its desire to upkeep this tradition. So Jesus chose to be born in the center of a town that lived out what it meant to worship God. That is the story and place that he invites them to join him first and foremost. We also see in this passage that suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, in other words, the host of heaven poured out an engaging worshipful blessing on the invitation of God's story. Heaven was so excited about this message. Heaven was so pumped up about this powerful message of the kingdom that, like, we just see the heavens burst out and, and people are all worshiping. The skies are filled with angels and heavenly hosts. And they are signed, sealing, and delivering this proclamation, this invitation with the message of Jesus. They are so excited that worship is just pouring out of the heavens. The hosts of heaven poured out an engaging, worshipful blessing on the invitation to God's story. And at the heart of their worship, in the middle of all of that, you know, it was a worship set like we've never seen or experienced. It was one of those things that we would have probably just been blown away with and said, oh, that's what it means to worship God. But at the heart of their worship, we find that God was both honored with glory and elevated above all else. It's, what it's, it's the, the wording that it uses to describe their style of worship. It says, in the, in the midst of it all, God was honored with glory, and he was lifted or elevated above all else. If we want to experience what it means to worship fully, if we want to experience the presence of God in our worships, in our individual lives, in our devotions, this is the same model we should look to maintain when it means, when we look to see what it means to worship. This is the first and the foremost important thing. That we honor, that's a powerful word, unpack that this week, honor God with glory and elevate him above all else. As a, respo- as a result of experiencing the invitation and the presence of God in this worship set, the shepherds were motivated on an adventure to personally meet Jesus and his mission. This worship thing was so powerful that after the angel told them what was going to happen, invited them to be part of the story, <coughs> and blessed it with worship, the shepherds are going, whoa, we need to actually see this guy. This is, that, did you see that worship set? It was so powerful that I actually, we need to go and meet Jesus personally. I don't want to just hear the message anymore. I need to go see this baby. This baby that I'm going to spend my life worshiping, this, this baby I've spent my life trying to worship, <coughs> Excuse me. That is what we need to go see. The shepherd said, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. Then the next word is the most powerful. So the shepherds hurried off. Do we worship in a way that hurries us off into the world? <clears throat> Do we worship in a way that that says, I can't wait to go do the stuff now. Is that what our worship feels like? <coughs> the shepherd's encounter with Jesus filled their hearts and worship in a way that poured out on all that they met and gave them an unusual authority. 
says in the passage, when they'd seen them, when they heard, when, when the shepherds had seen Jesus, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. These dummies, these thieves, these guys that couldn't get real jobs, all of a sudden become really authoritative pieces of the story of Christmas. In fact, it says that when they actually experienced this worship and they went to meet Jesus personally, after they met him personally, they became Pete the repeat parrot, and all they could do is pour out this message to everyone they met. Evangelism or this external sense of sharing the story is a byproduct of their worship. It is something that overflowed from their hearts. But that is not the only thing that happened. I said when we feel the presence of God in worship, it can transform us. And that is exactly what we see happening to the shepherds. So as they go out, these dirty shepherds that probably have sheep poop stuck to their collars and stuff like that are now walking into places of public worship and places of public encounter. And they begin to tell the story of Jesus. And everyone that's sitting in the corner pub while the shepherds drop this just jaw drops. Who knew these shepherds could talk like that? The message transformed them because worship transformed them. What they experienced in worship, when they pressed in to move from fear to meeting Jesus personally, it transformed them in a way that gave them authority, a way that poured out on everyone they met. Now Mary, she experienced worship in a little bit of a different way. The scripture says Mary experienced deep worship in her heart because she valued these experiences with God. We read that line is ponder or sometimes it says Mary thought about, uh, kept these things in her heart and thought about them. It's a form of worship we call meditation. The idea of we, we accept something, we, we, we sit on it before the Lord, we wrestle with it, and we consider it daily on what are the implications of these experiences, of these beliefs for our lives. So the shepherds experienced worship in an external way. Mary's experiencing worship in an internal way. Both are really needed. Worshiping Jesus has both internal implications and external. The shepherds, I think, also had an internal implication as what caused them to become so external. The Christmas story, in closing, reminds us Ordinary people that Jesus longs to radically encounter us and move us from fear to co-conspirators who position their lives in response to worshiping God fully. Let's not be anything we're not. We're ordinary people. But the cool thing about ordinary people are they're the...